Hallelujah. Father, we celebrate that the joys and the promises and the beauty of Psalm 23 is the reality for the redeemed in this room today. We thank you, Lord, as further psalms demonstrate that in Christ who was to come and Christ who has arrived now from our vantage point in redemptive history, we have privileged access to the royal points of entry into your presence. We thank you that we can come into your courts with singing. We can come through your gates with praise. Places reserved for that which is holy, sacred, set apart, that which is reserved and worthy of your glorious presence. The only way that we can enter these places is through Christ our Lord. We thank you that we can do so because he has washed us clean through the cleansing power of his own blood. We thank you that we can do so because his righteousness has been imputed to our account. We thank you that we can do so because this was a plan by your decree executed, Lord, conceived before time began, executed in time, and then applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, sovereignly awakening our hearts to the resurrection glory of new life in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we realize the benefits of our salvation, which are too vast to comprehend, Lord, I pray that you would nevertheless stretch our understanding to grasp a little more. Today, as we open your scriptures, I pray that you would deepen our appreciation for the truths that you have given us, laid down precept upon precept, from the patriarchs and prophets through to the apostles, Lord. I pray that you would also, Lord, write upon the table of our hearts the truths of your holy word that we may not soon forget them, but they may have their work, that they may work within us to transform us and sanctify us into the image of Christ our Lord. We pray that our confidence will be built to boldly and, and to emphatically proclaim the glories of Christ Jesus to a world yet lost and dying. And we pray that through your church, equipped by your spirit and word, that you would go forth like a warrior even in this generation and ransom for yourself a people so that more might join the multitudes singing praises to your glorious and holy name on that final day. In all of this, Lord, may you be glorified in your church equipped. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the great privilege and honor of opening God's holy word. This precious document which lays forth for us the revelation of Christ our Lord. From the earliest pages in the record of Genesis, all the way through to the glorious vision of John in the book of Revelation. Today we find ourselves somewhere in between and drawing truths and some concepts from the old and the new with our primary text in Hebrews chapter 7. So would you turn there with me today? Hebrews 7 will be our primary text today. The title of this morning's message is Melchizedek's Legacy. Melchizedek, that strange and shadowy figure in some ways, that mysterious type of Christ that appears just briefly on the stage of Genesis history whose presence and significance uh, begins to be expounded through the course of Scripture as it unfolds. Melchizedek will be our featured persona today. Why? Well, because we're in a Genesis series and we've made it to Genesis 14, which records an interesting interaction between Abram, Abram at the time, Abraham, of course, after his name is changed, in conflict with the kings of the north. We come to call them the Keterlamer Coalition. And they had made war with the kings of the south, five king group uh, in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah where Abram's nephew Lot lived. 
Incidentally, as a result of this conflict, possessions and people were taken hostage, including Lot and his family. Thus Abraham intervened. He took with him a group of how many kids, people? How strong was Abram's army? Does anyone remember? How many people in Abram's army? Does anyone recall? Someone said 318 in the back. It's exactly correct. 318 of Abram's forces went and they declared war on these four kings, the Keterlaomer Confederacy, and they were victorious. So Lot is rescued, ransomed, and all, basically, of the people of the Sodom and Gomorrah region, and the property is going to be returned. And then in Genesis 14, we find the, this weird or strange incident unfolding in the Valley of the Kings. All right, extra points. Valley of the Kings in Hebrew. Anyone remember the name, young people? What's the Valley of the Kings? What's the Hebrew word for it? Well, trivia this morning? Sheva. So Sheva is the name of this Valley of the Kings, and there... Abram meets two kings. What are their names, young people? Again, just a little review and reminder. What are the names of the two kings that Abram meets in the King's Valley? Shout them out if you remember. One king is the title of our message today. Little hint. Melchizedek. <laughs> Good. And the other is the king of Sodom. And so what happens is the offerings of the king of Sodom are rejected. He's not even named in the text. He serves as a wicked contrast, an authority that's illegitimate. But there is a godly, righteous king, and that's Melchizedek. But he's not just a king, he's also a, anybody? Melchizedek, king and priest, very good. And so here we have then the scenario in context. We have the meeting in Sheba, the king's valley between two kings, a righteous and a wicked one. And there's an interaction between Abram and this important king, Melchizedek, which includes a sacred feast, including bread and wine. It includes a blessing, prophetic in some sense, and also, this exchange of tithes, or this giving of tithes by Abraham to King Melchizedek. All this proves extremely significant. We've said it before, it might remain a, an interesting footnote in redemptive history. But as the Holy Spirit saw fit, it is explained in further detail as the Scriptures unfold. Hence our message today. The aim of this morning's sermon is to highlight the importance of Genesis 14, given further references in Scripture. You may recall in our Genesis series, we've done something like this two other times. In Genesis 12, the first uh, kind of terms of covenant are laid out for Abram by God himself. And it's just a little section, a little chapter by word count, but it, it is extremely important. And then further testimony in Scripture, much like our passage today, demonstrates as much. So we took some time to revisit Abram's altar as it was important to the prophets in Isaiah 51, 1 through 6. We took some time to revisit Abram's altar uh, through the lens of the book of Hebrews as well. Hebrews chapter 11, where Abram was commended for his faith. He lived by faith. He died in faith. He was commended for his faith. And then in a similar way, today, Hebrews 7 contains much explanation about this mysterious, shadowy king and priestly figure, Melchizedek. Hence, we turn to the author of Hebrews for further enlightenment on this uh, interesting character in the Old Testament. As we do so, we also, re we also remember this, or note this, that Melchizedek appears first by historical type in Genesis 14. Remember, we covered that concept. Type is something that is symbolic, significant, represents something to come. And then the corresponding parallel to type in theology is, is usually called antitype. That is the fulfillment or that which corresponds, that which was prophesied or prefigured, and the type is the antitype. 
So Melchizedek is the type, and that which he represents symbolizes that which he prophesies through this means. This literary mechanism is Jesus Christ as we find him. So Melchizedek first appears as a historical type in Genesis 14. He appears again in our worship text as a prophetic type in Psalm 110. But we also covered another text in a recent message, Zechariah 6, 11 through 14. And there in a vision, the prophet sees that a priest is actually crowned. And so you have another priest-king figure celebrated or prophetically uh, proclaimed in that book as well. Psalm 110 and Zechariah, therefore, demonstrate a Melchizedekian significance as he appears in the form of a prophetic hope of a Messiah yet future. Then, if you will, Melchizedek himself appears in substance in the incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Melchizedek to come prefigured of old, if you will. There are many passages that demonstrate that he is prophet, priest, and king, are there not? Think of Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Here, foreign dignitaries, sometimes we call them kings, we three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. So these important men come, and what do they do? They bring their tithes, if you will. They bring tribute. They bring gifts worthy of a sovereign greater than them, similar to what Abram did to Melchizedek of old, signaling that Melchizedek has come now. In the incarnate Christ, he has come in substance. Similarly, Matthew 26, the woman with the alabaster flask pours the oil on Jesus' head. It's a precious ointment, and this uh, compels Judas to protest. He says, wouldn't this expensive commodity be better sold than the money given to the poor? But recognizing the importance of bringing an offering, tithes if you will, or a gift worthy of the sovereign, Jesus commends the woman for this act of worship, demonstrating that he is Melchizedek to come is worthy of this kind of offering. And then just a few paragraphs later, Jesus Christ himself spreads a sacred feast before his disciples of bread and wine, of course, at the Last Supper, and therefore demonstrating as Melchizedek to come that he in substance fulfilled what was in shadow form prefigured in Melchizedek of old. And then we have a fourth category in Scripture, and that would be in line with the context of our passage today. Finally, Melchizedek, his persona is expounded in Hebrews. Leading us to ask this question, perhaps, is a great way to frame this message. What is so great about Melchizedek? What is so great about this interesting figure with very little word-by-word word count dedicated to him in Genesis 14. Well, Hebrews 7 answers this question. Now, let us turn to the reading of the Scripture with that introduction. Would you stand with me as you're able out of reverence for God's Word and listen as all of Hebrews 7 is declared to you in your hearing today? A little bit extra Scripture than we're used to, but I think it will serve us well in our overview message today. Hebrews 7.1 here is the holy word of God. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, through these, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise, to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one had ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. What is so great about Melchizedek? Well, we have overflowing answers in Hebrews chapter 7. This is just an overview message today, which means we won't dig into each phrase and clause and word in detail, but simply go over in a more summary form the uh, manifold reasons why Melchizedek is great that are recorded and expounded for us in Hebrews chapter 7. So in recent years, we've gone through the book of Hebrews and covered this chapter at length, and now we've covered Genesis 14 as well in our sermon series. But this is a sermon meant to connect, to uh, establish, or to recognize the connection between the two. And I'm sure you notice the connection directly in 7.1. 
This is a direct reference to the incident in Genesis 14 that I summarized earlier. 7.1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Mosai God, of the Mosai God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. And so here in these first two verses, we have reference to that exact event in Genesis 14. Again, what's so great about Melchizedek? Let me give you three answers this morning supported by our text. Number one, Melchizedek resembles Jesus. What was so great about this one of old? He resembled a greater one to come. He resembled the great one to come. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Secondly, what's so great about Melchizedek, this priest king? His legacy is greater than the patriarchs. You can include in this the priests, <clears throat> Abraham and the Levites in particular, Moses and Aaron as well. The book says he's greater than them as well. His legacy is greater than the patriarchs. Thirdly, his priestly order is superior to that of Aaron. His priestly order is superior to Aaron's order. That is what is so great about Melchizedek. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we find that this priest king of old represents, he resembles Jesus. How does he resemble Jesus? Well, this in part is review of a prior message from Genesis 14, but note again, he resembles him in office. For this is Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High. We could expand this multi-office identity to include that with of at least functioning in the role of prophet as well. Inasmuch as Melchizedek heard the word of the Lord and delivered it to his servant Abram, he was functioning in the role of a prophet. Therefore, in that incident in Genesis 14, we have a multi-office serving person, Melchizedek, as king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Now, the significance of Melchizedek is evident in this. Why? Because Jesus would be the prophet, priest, king to come. Abram's homage and the, uh, testifies to the superiority and the office of Melchizedek. Abram's homage granting tithes to this man, the lesser, tithes to the greater, that is. This is a testimony to the superior acclaim of Melchizedek. Now, in, tradi in Jewish tradition, and indeed in the Scriptures, Abraham enjoys, he is privileged to have a very significant role. He's such an important figure. He's a founder of the faith in many ways, and as much as he is the one through whom God gave covenant promises that would be fulfilled to him and through him to a lineage that would expand to outnumber the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. So Abram is a venerated character in redemptive history, and perhaps even outsized in the typical or cultural Jewish or Hebrew mindset. But if we were to consider Abraham among our greatest heroes, we would be missing out on this truth, that there is a greater hero than him still in the Old Testament. And this spoke of the very one who would make the promises to Abraham possible. Abraham paid homage to a superior one who held a superior acclaim. He was superior to Abraham in many ways, Melchizedek, and this is pictured in, among other things, his multi-office role. Melchizedek also resembles Jesus in his character. Notice that it says of him in verse 2 that he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. So one is his identity by name, the other 
is his association by place. That is to say, uh, Melchizedek is associated with righteousness in his name itself. Uh, Mel, Melech, king, Melchizedek, uh, or righteousness, something along those lines. So, my king is righteous. My king is righteousness. The transliteration of his name. This is what the author of Hebrews is referring to. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. But then he's also king of a realm. Kids, you remember this realm, Salem? What city does that remind you of? There's a city that has a similar name that is eventually associated with Salem. Who knows what that city is? <laughs> Jerusalem, that is correct. So Jerusalem becomes the city of God, becomes the name that is associated with the place of his dwelling, the seat of authority, if you will, where the multi-office king will one day reside, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. This is expanded to include all of the redeemed realm, the New Testament, the New Jerusalem, and so forth. And so this name not only represents a place of God's dwelling, in favor with his people when the sacrifice was provided and his people had entrance, safe uh, entrance into his presence, but also the name itself means peace. Thus, Melchizedek resembles Jesus in so much as he is righteousness and he is peace, if you will. Jesus Christ is referred to, we don't have time to turn to these references, but do so on your own time as you're able. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Twice in Jeremiah, as I recall, 33, 16. This is the name by which he will be called. The prophet prophesies of the Messiah. The Lord is our righteousness. So just as Melchizedek of old was the king of righteousness, so there would be a Melchizedek to come, if you will, whose name would be the Lord is our righteousness. So Jesus Christ in that name is associated with Melchizedek. He resembles this figure of old inasmuch as his name is righteousness, and he himself, of course, is righteousness, as Hebrews 7 goes on to detail our sinless Savior and sacrifice, but also peace. He is uh, also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. In Isaiah chapter 6, 9, verse 6, you'll recall, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And among his names, the last one in that verse is Prince of Peace. There will be a child to come. There will be an incarnate Messiah. There will be a Savior, a Melchizedek of the future, who will be called the Prince of Peace. So in this way, in office and in character, Jesus Christ or Melchizedek resembles Jesus Christ. There is one more way in these first three verses, perhaps we could point out, the similarity between the two, Melchizedek and Jesus. Note verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So it's something of a literary device that has prophetic weight that Melchizedek appears all of the sudden in Scripture. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know who his children were, if he had any children. We, there is a mystery as to his lineage. Now, he appears all of the sudden in this way on purpose. And by this, the Spirit gives us an illustration of an extraordinary lineage of Melchizedek to come. And this is what the author points to. So just as you could say, Melchizedek is without father, father or mother or genealogy. In other words, 
he is of extraordinary lineage. So there would be a Melchizedek to come who also has an extraordinary lineage. Now Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Talk about extraordinary lineage. Jesus could not have been born through the ordinary seed of Adam and remain untainted by original sin. But because he had neither father or mother in the ordinary sense, he is the Melchizedek to come. By virtue of his lineage, that is part and parcel of his holy character and also the fulfillment of this figure of old, this type of old that points to him uh, in as much as he resembles the one who preceded him in this figure of Melchizedek. So he has in origin and lineage an extraordinary role, just like Melchizedek of old. Furthermore, it says of Melchizedek how he suddenly appears in Scripture that he has neither beginning, at least in the record, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So there's no record, that is to say, of Melchizedek's birth. There's no record of his death. He appears in the Scripture almost as if he's always been there. Now, whether or not, that's not uh, that is true of, Mel, of Melchizedek as a historical person is less to the point than the fact that the way his, this incident is recorded illustrates something that there would be a Melchizedek to come who would have not only an extraordinary lineage, but an extraordinary existence. Jesus Christ existed before time forever, in fact, as the second person of the Trinity and enjoyed forever before he became incarnate, the pre-incarnate glory, if you will, of the Son of God as God. But there was a day when he became not just fully God, but fully man in the incarnation. And yes, he did die. Kids, how long was Jesus in the grave? Gideon, do you know how long Jesus was in the grave? Three days and three? That's correct. Then what happened, young people? What happened after three days? Jesus was in the grave. What's that? Yeah, that's right. He rose from the dead. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he demonstrated in that triumphal act, in part, that he was Melchizedek to come. He was one that would now continue as priest forever. Melchizedek of old resembled the Son of God in that he appears without origin story and without record of death. But the Melchizedek to come is the Son of God, and he continues a priest forever by virtue of what the author goes on to say in verse 16, his indestructible life. Death could not keep him in the grave. Furthermore, it says, that he is able to save to the uttermost. Why? Because verse 24 says he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Melchizedek resembles Jesus, and that's why he's so great. What's so great about Melchizedek? He is like Christ. Secondly, major point. What's so great about Melchizedek? His legacy is greater than the patriarchs. Now, proof of this, evidence to the same, is given in verses 4 through 17. Where at length our author in Hebrews describes the relationship, the associations, this arrangement between Melchizedek of old and Abraham the patriarch. Notice verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. In other words, the greatness of Melchizedek is evident in the fact that he received the tribute or the offering or this gift of wealth from Abraham. Now, the other king, we mentioned at the same time, you know, the king of Sodom, he was completely out of the loop of this arrangement. The king of Sodom is disrespected, if you will. 
He's demonstrated to have no real significance and importance in the loop of what's going on here. The king of Sodom is an illegitimate authority that seeks to rebelliously deny the word of God and stands as an idol and stands as a rebel against the Lord. But not so with Melchizedek. Melchizedek stood as a righteous king, king of righteousness and king of peace. And he ruled over a holy and righteous realm. And he had an off, in a multi-office a capacity in as much as he was king and priest and functioning as a prophet. And so Abraham recognized the superiority, the greatness of this individual and testimony to his uh, association, his relationship with him. He gave him a tenth of the spoils. Goes on to say the descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. In other words, there was a privileged role for the priests of old. They would receive the tithes of the people. Why? Because the priests were important in the order of temple worship of old. They represented the mediators that would bridge the gap between God and man, at least provisionally, in those sacrifices that symbolized what needed to be accomplished in order for man to be in communion with God. There must be one who would stand between. There must be a sufficient sacrifice and so forth. So the priests would receive the tithes of the people because they had that privileged role in this society. But notice what he goes on to say. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, namely Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Remember, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and demonstrating in this act that he is superior. Then verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, let's follow the author's logic, verse 9, that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, and he was still, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So this unique arrangement, just the mere fact that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, carried with it all of this symbolic reality of the greatness of Melchizedek to come. That is to say, Abraham tithed, in a sense, to Melchizedek, but Levi, who is yet to come through the lineage of Abraham, also tithed to Melchizedek in and through Abraham, if you will. And this picture of this event, this arrangement, and this exchange is, it demonstrates a hierarchy of priority and person. So the highest individual in this picture of old is Melchizedek himself. And to this individual, Abraham, the patriarch, paid his respects. And through Abraham, his lineage to come paid their respects. And this pointed, of course, to a legacy that was greater than Abraham and greater than the Levites. A greater legacy still. So Abraham's tithe proves this. Levi through Abraham's uh, Levi's tithe through Abraham proves this, and then it goes on to give a greater claim. Notice verses eleven or seventeen now deal with a superior order of priesthood. Verse eleven. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. 
For there is a change, where there is a change in priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So you see, there's a different priestly order here. There's a different law as to who would serve in this role of mediator between God and man. Now, the old law was that whoever was a descendant of Levi, by virtue of his privileged family line, would serve provisionally, though he would die, though he was a sinner, though his sacrifices were insufficient, and though he himself was blemished, he would nevertheless serve in that role. But now there is a change in the order of priesthood. Consequently, there is a change in the law or the prescription for who will be qualified for that privileged position. And Jesus, who came from a different tribe entirely, Judah, now assumes high priesthood. But how does he do so? What is the greater claim? Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, so not because he was born by the lineage of Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. So the legacy of Melchizedek is greater than the patriarchs, and this legacy includes in it a greater claim to priesthood. Jesus claims a priesthood not because he was born of the sons of Aaron, but he claims it because of his resurrection, because he demonstrated in his act of redemption the full scale uh, the full scope of his work in the incarnation, that he deserves that privileged position because death could not hold him in the grave. Because he rose from the dead and he proved in that act that he was extraordinary. As we've already read, that he came from a di different lineage entirely. That he was not of the sons of Adam, the corrupt generation of any other human being that would die in their sins without a Savior. He was the Savior. And his claim to priesthood was proven in the fact that he uh, boasted an indestructible life. That he would continue forever and save to the uttermost, as we've said, because he holds his priesthood permanently. Rather than the order of Aaron, where a Levite claimed priesthood, by tribal lineage, by birthright, Jesus, who descended from Judah, a different tribe entirely, became high priest not by bodily descent, but by the power of resurrection. How much better is this than the legacy of the patriarchs of old? Well, think of a couple examples by contrast. Do you remember Aaron's sons? You can turn to Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. I actually turn you there just to get a stark contrast here. Let's go to Leviticus 10. Now, this is the second generation after Aaron. So you would think at the beginning, at least, there would be a great representation. You know, this is the living memory of the law being delivered on Sinai. God revealing himself in power and in glory. Surely the sons of Abraham would not, or of Aaron, excuse me, would not soon forget this fearful, sober charge, this weighty call to serve righteously in the priesthood. Well, such was not the case. Notice Leviticus 10.1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They're already breaking the law of God. They're already disregarding his holy instructions. They're already doing their own thing. 
Verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron, the father of these two sons that were instantly scorched by the judging fire of God, did not protest. Aaron did not say, but these are my sons. This isn't fair. Why didn't you give them a second chance? Why didn't you give them fair warning? No, he shut his mouth. And why did he do so? Because he realized through the words of his servant Moses how serious this role was and how great and tragic the sin was when these Aaron's sons acted in a way that would disregard and disobey the instruction of the Lord. What did this prove? This proved that any priest, as evidenced by this sinfulness of heart before Jesus, Though they may have served symbolically in a role as high priest or other sorts and so forth, none of them were holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, or exalted in the heavens, not even close. Think of another example, 2 Samuel 4, 10 through 11. Two sons of another priest, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. What were they doing? They were using their privileged position to coerce and to abuse their power, and to seduce people into uh, extramarital affairs and all this horrific stuff and, and steal and, and so forth. And what was their end? Same as Nadab and Abihu. They were killed in battle with the Philistines as judgment of God. Why? Because they, though they had Aaron's lineage claim to the priesthood, certainly proved themselves to be horrifically unqualified for that role. But there was one to come whose legacy was greater than the patriarchs, greater than Abraham, greater than Levi, greater than Aaron. And this priest would continue forever because he was of a different order. He came from a different line. There was a different set of circumstances that established his right and the terms of intercession between him and his people. This is the Melchizedek to come. This is Jesus Christ. This brings up our final point this morning. Again, we're asking, what's so great about Melchizedek? Melchizedek is great, and as much as he resembles Jesus, this figure of the Old Testament is great because his legacy is greater than the patriarchs. And finally this morning, his priestly order is superior to Aaron's. This, of course, overlaps with what we've already been saying. But notice in what ways our author goes on to expound the superiority of the priestly order of Melchizedek. Verse 18 On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. So the former order had elements to it that were symbolic, important as far as it went. But in the end, when it came to effectuating the sacrifice we truly needed, or establishing the unbroken relationship of redemption between a sinner and a holy God, in the end, this arrangement proved weak and useless. Why? Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the priestly order of Melchizedek is superior to the priestly order of Aaron because it carries with it a better hope, a hope that is established by divine oath. Notice verse 20, and it is not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. 
But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the office, the priestly order of Melchizedek carries more weight than the priestly order of Aaron. Because Jesus Christ is established in that position by God who swore an oath that he would be high priest forever. And this oath, we find the record of it, the first record in Scripture of it, in Psalm 110. And this is the citation that appears in our text today. So we have this great hope that we can draw near to God. That as we sung and as we uh, established in Psalm 100 last week, we have access through the privilege or the points of entry, the privilege to pass through those royal uh, points of entry into God's courts and into his house and into his presence. Why? Because we have a high priest of a different order who establishes hope for us to draw near to God through the sacrifice that is sufficient that he provided. And this is established on the basis of an oath whereby God swore by himself that he would not change his mind, but establish Melchizedek, Christ, in that role as a Melchizedekian, if you will, priest forever. This will relate to our message next week, Lord willing, in Genesis 15 where a further revelation of God's covenant promises to Abraham occur in the context of an oath. The covenant oath is featured in that very important text. And we will see how seriously God takes his promises. We will see in that more evidence of how seriously the claim of Christ is to the Melchizedekian order of the priesthood, and therefore how firmly established and absolutely assured, if you're a believer in this room, your salvation and mine is secure in him. This priestly order is superior to Aaron's because it carries with it a better hope, a hope of drawing near to God, a hope established by divine oath. And therefore, this makes Jesus, according to verse 22, the guarantor of a better covenant. Uh, Young people, kids in the room, what is a covenant? Anyone know? A promise, that is correct. Anything to add to that? What is a covenant, young people? It is a promise between, what, two or more parties, right? So a covenant is an arrangement. Now in Scripture, as we see kind of the uh, different covenants detailed, they tend to carry with them a certain pattern. They tend to be an arrangement between a greater and a lesser party. Certainly this holds true in our con- the context of our text today. So there's a, something of a covenant arrangement between, if you will, Melchizedek and Abram. Melchizedek was the greater party. He was the higher king. And Abram recognized his role and his service and his veneration. His honoring of that greater king was evident in him bringing this offering and so forth. And then there's this feast. Feasts often attend a covenant, something like a covenant meal, whereby the communion, the friendship, the association, that arrangement between those two people is evident in as much as they're sharing a meal together. And in that case, it was by virtue of the provision of the greater king. Now, our covenant relationship with Jesus is similar. We talked about this in connection with communion recently. Two weeks ago, we celebrated the Lord's table here. And in that meal, we have evidence as the Lord welcomes us through Jesus Christ to commune with him at his table. We have evidence in that sacred feast that Jesus commands believers of all ages to partake of that we dwell in his presence, in his favor, by virtue of his provision. It's because Jesus has supplied his body 
represented by the bread. It's because Jesus has spilled his blood, represented by the cup, that we have free access into his presence. Psalm 23, we sang today, what is one of the promises or one of the things that marks a good shepherd? He sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the consequences of the fall. And yet, in the presence of these enemies, Jesus overcomes them and sets a table. Though we are still in the sinful realm, we have proof at the feast of the Lord's table of communion that we will move beyond this order of sin and fallenness to one day join what will be the fulfillment of that feast in glory, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that table, the feast that the Melchizedek King provides is one of glorious, triumphant bounty that overflows with the testimony of His provision, not only for the sustaining of our physical body, which we do thank Him for, but even more so and infinitely more so the sustaining of eternal life by providing in His body and blood the very thing that redeems and sustains us. This is all part and parcel to the better covenant. Jesus is the guarantor of a better association, arrangement, and relationship, a covenant agreement between us and Him. Why? Because He is a priest of a superior order. He provides through these things a better hope for us. He's established it. It's been established by God the Father by divine oath. And it has gained for us entry through Himself into a communion, relationship, fellowship, friendship, with a holy God. This, as our author goes on to demonstrate the, the superior order of the Melchizedekian priesthood, we find is a permanent priesthood indeed. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I wonder how many priests there were until Jesus came. How many children of Aaron's children of Aaron's children of Aaron's children served in that role? Do you guys imagine? Certainly it had to have been thousands upon thousands. And why? Why? Because they died. And when your priest died, you had to uh, trust that another would take his place. Now, we heard a tale of wicked priests before recorded in Scripture, you know, in the case of the sons of Eli and in the case of the sons of Aaron, we have pictured you know, some of the corruption that attended the priesthood in Nadab and Abihu and Hophni and Phinehas. But these, these were horrible examples who were corrupt in character. But that wasn't the only thing that corrupted the priesthood. Just the uh, mortality, the fact that the priest would die was also a corruption. But the book of Hebrews speaks of one who is uncorrupted, does it not? And we return back to other testimonies in Scripture fulfilled in Christ. They talk about, you know, David... He would see corruption, but the Messiah would not. He is of an incorruptible quality. He continues as a priest forever. His priesthood is permanent. Now, because he holds his priesthood permanently, this results in something. Verse 25. Consequently, so that's a linking word. As a result of his permanent priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, the following is true. That is to say, verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' priestly order, that of Melchizedek, is superior because it is a permanent priesthood. And inasmuch as his priesthood is permanent, it offers for us, it secures for us, utmost salvation. Salvation to the uttermost. Not just a provisional covering over of sins, 
We know that the blood and bulls of goats could never truly expiate, never remove sins, could never truly provide propitiation, absorbing the wrath due to those sins. But when that bull, that scapegoat, and so forth were slaughtered or sent forth into the wilderness, they only symbolized one to come. Yet in Christ, because His priesthood is a permanent one, and because He is the perfect sacrifice, in Him we have true, utter, uttermost removal of sin and uttermost satisfaction of the judgment it deserves. Goes on, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, if you were in the old order of things, guilty of a sin, and you trusted, if you were a believer, that God would use the office of the priesthood to represent you to go before you, before the Father, that some hope for forgiveness might, might be secured, at least symbolically, in that act. But man... You had to trust a guy to wake up in the morning and not to sleep in. You had to trust a guy that had to go through a ceremonial washing and maybe he would forget a step and be struck dead in the Holy of Holies. You had to trust a guy that was serving a role where others had been killed for transgressing God's law, i.e. Nadab and Abihu and so forth. But there would be a priest to come who you could trust implicitly because by the power of an indestructible life, you know for certain he always lives to make intercession for you. It's not a once a year sacrifice. It's not a repeated thing. It's a once and for all event insofar as the payment was made. And it's an always and continual thing. And as far as that communion established through his mediatorial role uh, remains for us. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he always lives to make intercession for them. And he does so on the basis, final point, under the superior priestly order of a sufficient sacrifice. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. Now, why is it so important that Jesus, the Melchizedek, to come be these things? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the above the heavens. Not just because he serves, he represents us perfectly as a mediator in his sinlessness, but also because he had to be the spotless lamb. He himself is not only the one who goes between the mediator, he himself is also the sacrifice. He has no need, verse 27, like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Can you hear the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood evident in the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary? This perfect lamb without spot or blemish, who is holy, pure, sacred, glorious, set apart, exalted in the heavens, unstained, separated from sinners. He was the one who not only pleads our case, is the one who not only pleads our case before the Father, but he was the one when his perfection became the perfect, once for all offered sacrifice sufficient to secure our redemption. More comparison and contrast as the author wraps up his thoughts in this section. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Praise his holy name. His priestly order is superior. Now, when you read this, the applications are manifold. 
We have so much reason to consider the greatness of Melchizedek revealed in the antitype Jesus Christ. Why is Melchizedek great? More precisely, why is Jesus great? Because he, in his multi-office, in his character, in his origin and lineage, proved to be the perfect one to fill Messiah's shoes. He was our Messiah and is, in fact. Why is Melchizedek or the Melchizedek to come great? Because his legacy is greater than the patriarchs of old. However great our heroes of the faith may seem to be, nevertheless, each and every one of them was flawed. Each and every one of them deserved hell for his sin. And each and every one of them was commended only for his faith in the sinlessness of another to come. The sinlessness of another for us who has come. Whose greater claim to the priesthood was on the basis of his accomplishing the sufficient, necessary work of redemption uh, with the crescendo and exclamation point at the end, his resurrection and ascension into glory. And this priestly order serves to offer us a better hope, a permanent priesthood with a sufficient sacrifice that can satisfy the Father by being crucified as a substitute in our place. Wow! But now contrast that with any false religion, any hope of bettering your life by any other means. Think of this in the tragedy of a lingering hope in temple sacrifices. Even today, there are those who hold out hope of a reconstituted system. Uh, you know, Jews who have not realized their Messiah, Jesus Christ, are tragically lost. They're waiting for a priesthood that would be inferior even if it was to be reestablished. That could never ultimately satisfy their sins. I've listened to some of them. I remember listening on the radio and a Jew going on about the significance of the feasts of old and how much meaning he finds in practicing them. Speaking of atonement, he's like, what do you do when you sin? Well, you make atonement, he says. You go, you ask for forgiveness, you try your best to change your life. You take certain acts of spiritual discipline to demonstrate your sincerity, your seriousness. Does he honestly think that that is a sufficient sacrifice to cover the crime, the great sin of offending the thrice holy God revealed to Isaiah and that temple room vision, the one of whom the seraphim cry, holy, 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 and without end? No, he should respond like Isaiah Whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. And then rely on an external source of redemption entirely. The sovereign coal touching his lips. The blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. There's nothing that we could mix or add. Nothing we could substitute. No other hope in all of religious history of old or whatever religious innovation to come that can serve as a substitute for the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice Jesus Christ offered on our behalf. Anything else is a tragedy. Why? Because it allows us to be deluded, realizing, without realizing that the sufficient price has already come in Christ, pretending in our pride and in our sin that there's other ways to glory, like the repeated sacrifice of the Catholic Mass or the cooperative works that that synergistic system teaches or the promises of self-betterment in New Age philosophy, or the hope of a mere animal sacrifice of the uh, you know, uh, uh, sacrificial system of old, or the capricious forgiveness without propitiation that Islam promises of an arbitrary sovereign, and so on and so forth. When we consider, by contrast, the religions of our day, the other options for hope for an eternal future, 
just like the author does in comparison, in comparison and contrast with the old covenant system versus the new priestly order in Jesus Christ and Melchizedek to come, our praise, our appreciation, our understanding ought to overflow in glorious relief and thanks to our great God for what He has accomplished. This is what Genesis 14 was all about. What appears to us as a chance meeting between kings after a successful conquest was nothing of the sort. It was a designed interaction to teach us of the great king, priest, and prophet to come who would give his own life to save his own people. And here we are. And celebrating, if you're a believer in this room, that Jesus Christ's blood is powerful to save even you, even me. Or if you're in the hearing of this message and you have not bowed your knee and your heart before the only one that can actually remove your sins, that can that has actually paid for them in his blood, I beg you to repent and to turn and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Melchizedek to come, the one and only way to God the Father. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the promises and the assurance and the expounding of your holy scriptures, the glories of our salvation. Help us to appreciate them, Lord Jesus, more fully as a result of what you have granted us in your word by way of explanation. I pray that the Holy Spirit might use this message in two ways. Yes, to reinforce the faith and encourage the hearts of the saints to offer to you even more acceptable worship as we thank you that we can enter your courts with praise because of Christ, the Melchizedek, who has come. But I also pray that you would use this message to draw the lost to uh, salvation in Christ alone. They would repent of their sin and turn to Him and trust that in the amazing work that you have done, that you have proclaimed and ordered from before time began and accomplished in history, the incarnation of Christ our Lord, our prophet, priest, and king, that there is hope for eternal life, a guarantee of a better covenant. covenant. And finally, Jesus, we thank you that you are able to save to the uttermost and we can draw near to God through you since you live even today and right now are making intercession for us before the Father. What a humbling, what an amazing thought. May you be glorified. May you be uh, magnified in our understanding, in our testimony, our confession, in our actions as a result of this message today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.